Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Father, we have sung your glories. We have sung our desire to to connect with you. Lord, we have sung about wanting to know you more, so to make yourself known today. Lord, we admit that there is no song that we can sing that would give you enough fame and enough glory and justice for the mighty and magnificent God you are. Father, we confess that there's no words that we're gonna preach that will totally unveil your goodness and your glory. But Lord, in your mystic way, in your mysterious way, these things still bring pleasure and honor and joy to you. And so, Father, as we continue in this worship service, I pray, I beg that your spirit will intervene. Use the words that are spoken by a man and touch the souls of your people. We love you, and we thank you. In your son's precious name, amen. You may be seated. Good afternoon, guys. Everybody doing all right? Good, good. My name's Steve Cantor. I'm one of the elders here. Our pastor, James, and his wife, Natasha, are uh, living it up right now on a beach somewhere in Mexico, getting a little time away, right? Good for them, and uh, they're very well deserving of this. I think it's been about 10 years since they've had an opportunity just to get away on vacation, refresh, and uh, just, just to connect with one another, and I'm sure connect with God. So I'm thankful that we got an opportunity to send them off and uh, they can enjoy. So if you'll do me a favor, if you'll go ahead and turn your Bibles, or open your apps, your Bible app. Uh, we're gonna be in Matthew 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 35. We're actually gonna go through 10.1. 10.1, but we're gonna read these first few verses here, 9.35 through 38. We're gonna jump right in because I think I've got a lot here to talk about today. That's always scary when the pastor says he thinks he's got a lot. That means he doesn't know, right? We could go a long time. That's all right, 9.35 says this. And Jesus went through all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Today's message is titled Urban Farming. And I know that sounds like really chic and hipsterish, you know, we, we start some urban farms up on the roof, but I promise I'm not gonna go there. That's not, that's not my intent. We're not, gonna, we're not gonna go that direction. But I think what happens is we, we read these stories in the Bible and, and oftentimes they have these analogies or there's um, these stories that are linked to shepherding or they're linked to farming. In, in this time period, most people were involved in some form of farming or taking care of, of cattle or sheep. The life revolved around that. So they had, to, they had to understand what it meant to take care of the ground. They had to understand what it meant to take care of the livestock because their lives depended upon that. 
but we don't live in that kind of culture in that world today. We live in New York City, which is so far removed from anything agricultural. You know, I was looking at New York City, some of the stats of the 100 top most uh, populous, or excuse me, densely populated zip codes, 84 of them are in New York City. We have about 27, 28,000 people per square mile. Anybody here from the great state of Texas? There you go. Represent. I knew that was a safe one. All right, so if you take the world population and you drop them off in Texas, that's the density that we live with here in New York City. That's a lot of people, right? So we don't have a whole lot of room for farms. We don't have a lot of cattle running around, even if you're in Queens, you know. It's still, we don't have that anymore. <laughs> a little shade right there, you know. We, we just don't have that around us. So when we hear these kinds of terms, they, they seem foreign to us. When we read these passages that talk about harvesting and they talk about shepherding, we, 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 we miss the weight of them. A couple months ago, I was in Texas uh, visiting with the church. I, I do some ministry work here in the city, and there's this church in Texas that's just a great partner to the city. And so I was visiting with that church, and one night for dinner, they took me to one of their members' house. And he's got this big ranch just south of San Antonio someplace. I'm telling you, we turned off the main road into his driveway and we drove over two miles to the center of his property where his house sat. That's just to get to the center of his, his property. It's, I, I looked up the size and everything. It's about the size of six or seven central parks, his entire property uh, that he owns in Texas, right? So. When we're talking, I mean, I'm like, yeah, I've got a 20 foot by 30 foot outdoor space with some, you know, fake grass in the back and stuff. But that, that doesn't compare to what he has. And when he's talking about taking care of his land, I don't understand because I don't know what it's like to have miles and miles of land. And when we read verses like this, we lose the weight because we don't understand. But this is one of the most, to me, one of the most impactful verses in scripture. It has such great importance. These verses that we read are central to Jesus' ministry. It's a big shift in Jesus' ministry right here, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Like I said, I'm afraid that we miss that sometimes. So I want to try to explain, using some farming terms and unpack a little bit of that, but I want to try to explain what Christ was getting to in these verses and why they're so important for us today. So let me set up this passage a little bit. If you look in Matthew, the book of Matthew, and starting in chapter four, Jesus begins to call his disciples. Towards the end of chapter four, in verse 18, it says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, uh, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and he saw them casting nets, and then he said, come follow me. And so chapter four, all the way up to chapter four, Jesus, they're setting the story, Jesus' birth and that, then he begins his ministry, and then he calls his disciples. And so he's bringing these disciples into the picture. These men were just ordinary, plain men. There was nothing extraordinary about them. They were fishermen, which was a respectable job, but it was just an ordinary job that people would have. Uh, they were tax collectors, not as respectable, but it was a position of an ordinary person. They were tradesmen, and they did other common tasks for the day. You had a zealous in there, which basically meant he was just a Jewish nationalist. He was very proud of his country and very proud of his culture and heritage. Uh, but they were ordinary men, nothing extraordinary about these men, except for Jesus gave them a command to follow him, and they responded, and they began following him. 
See, I think that's important because um, not one of these men earned the right to be called a disciple of Christ. Yet he invited them into that relationship. He invited them into the follow me. In God's economy of doing things, he's not calling us to be great, he's just calling us to be faithful. And these men were faithful. They were faithful in following him. But when he invited them in, the next five chapters, five or six chapters, what you see Jesus is doing two things. He's teaching and then he's doing miracles. So he invites these men in and he says, don't do anything, I just want you to follow me, I want you to watch, and then I want you to listen. Just, just come on, watch, follow me, and then listen. And as the 12 began to follow him, in chapter four, it says these words, it says, and Jesus went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Sounds very similar to what we see in chapter nine, right? Almost the exact same wording that we see in chapter nine, Jesus starts with in chapter four after he summons most of his disciples. And for the next five books, excuse me, the next five chapters of the book of Matthew, you have three chapters of him teaching the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five through eight, and Jesus is talking about things like the kingdom of God. He's talking about divorce. He's talking about the way we should follow him. He's, he's talking about how we should treat one another, how we should pray, how we should fast, and many other things. And he's telling his disciples, just follow me. Watch and listen. And then in chapter eight, Matthew starts recording these series of miracles that, that Jesus does. There's, there's about 10 of them, in fact, that, he, that he, he gives some testimony to. And so after the Sermon on the Mount, you have these 10 miracles where he cleanses the leper, he heals the diseased, he gives sight to two blind men, he calms the storm uh, that was raging on the sea, he casts out demons, and he even raises a young lady back to life. And Matthew in this book, in this section, he's emphatically trying to say something about Jesus. He's trying to drive home his point. And this is his point. Two things. He's wanting to say, one, Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the Son of God incarnate right in front of us. The second thing, through the miracles, he is saying, and God is with us. God is present. Listen, I... When I think of miracles, I used to think, man, just show me a miracle or two and I'd be on fire for you for the rest. How many? Raise your hand, you can confess. Just raise one person from the dead, I'm there. You'll never see me waver, you'll never see me. We feel that way, we think, how could they be seeing these things? But if you go through the Bible and you look, there's three seasons, there's three main periods in the Bible where you see miracles were almost like a, a normal occurrence, that they would be happening on a, on a normal pace. You see it in the book of Exodus with Moses when he's leading his people out of captivity of Egypt. You just see miracle after miracle after miracle because Moses was demonstrating, God was demonstrating through Moses that listen, I'm with you. I know the future is gonna be scary, but I'm with you, I'm with you. The, the second time we see it is in the prophets, uh, Second Kings with Elijah and Elisha, that, that he's doing all of these miracles, again, to remind his people, I'm with you. And then the third time is in the life and ministry of Jesus. So we look at miracles as a way of sustaining our faith, but they're not intended to sustain our faith. Miracles are only to substantiate our faith. For God to say, I am here, I am the Lord, I control the supernatural. 
but they will never, never, never sustain your faith. Look at the people in the Old Testament. Bread was falling from heaven. Manna was coming from heaven, and they started grumbling. Man, bread again? It was falling from heaven. In the New Testament, you, you hear Jesus, he he's walks amongst his people, do, does all of these miracles. The, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, I went this, uh, Rasul and I went this spring. It's such a small area. You think it's this big spread out area, but it's a very small area. So everybody's aware of what Jesus is doing. They're seeing it. They're hearing firsthand stories about it. He dies on the cross. He raises from the grave. He spends 40 days ministering and eating with the people. And then he's getting ready to ascend into heaven. And in Acts it says, as they watched him ascend into heaven, some believed, but some still doubted. (laughs) Man, I just, I don't get it. I don't see, but miracles are never, never intended to sustain our faith. They're only there to substantiate that God is God and that he has power over the supernatural. So these 10 miracles and these teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 9 are bookend by this statement. And let me read that again. Now we're gonna read it from Matthew, Matthew, excuse me, Matthew 9, 35. The teachings of the Sermon on the Mount and these 10 miracles are bookend by this statement. And Jesus went through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Let's stop and talk about this for a second, all right? Because something is significant happening. We see it first, these words in chapter four, when Jesus just calls his disciples and he says, listen, follow me, watch me, listen to me. Don't do anything, just follow, just watch and listen. And then he goes through these miracles and this teaching and something about his approach to ministry is getting ready to change because he, he announces the same, the same phrase again. And here's the second significant thing happening. When you read this verse, what it does is it says, Jesus is going to a few places. He's going to a couple of cities and villages. No, what's it say? He's going to all of them, all of the cities, all of the villages. And he's healing a couple of people, knocking out a few diseases. All of them, every disease, every affliction, it says that Jesus is, is taking care of, taking care of them. And this is by every measure, every measure of man is successful ministry. Man, I'm a pastor. If I can knock out one disease, I would have this joint filled up, three services. Just one disease. By every measurement, this is a successful ministry. The crowds were gathering. He was attracting a huge crowd. He was healing diseases. He was getting invited to the different synagogues to preach. I mean, think about the conference tours. I mean, he was hitting all the major conferences. He was healing diseases and afflictions along the way. This is a successful ministry. This is what we strive for. This is what we, in our humanly standpoint, we want. But there was something wrong. There was something, and we're gonna see it in the next verse, that that still wasn't quite quite right. How many of you would like to be a part of Jesus' ministry right here, right? Like maybe if our hospitality team, hey, join our hospitality team, shake some hands, knock out a few diseases for the day, you know, get people to a seat, then you go preach in some synagogues all around New York. That's what's going on. We would all wanna be a part of this, and that's 
what Jesus is doing right here. But watch what happens in this next verse because it didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to me when I first read this. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had what? He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. All right, so I'm gonna talk about some points about urban farming. We're gonna talk about three different things. Um, Good friend of mine, a guy named Dehati Lewis, he's the pastor of Blueprint Church in Atlanta. He wrote a book called Among Wolves. And if you read that book, you're like, man, Steve jacked those three points from that book. I did. Dehati's a a good friend. We we started a a network together as his brainchild, but uh, something called the Rebuild Network. And these verses were very pivotal in, in our network and some of the things that we were teaching. And he's just really influenced me. So, you know, I try to reward him. I'm like, why am I doing that? I'll just steal him and give him credit here and, and use these three, three things that he talks about um, when we're talking about urban farming. And the first thing when we talk about our urban farming that we must do is we gotta feel with compassion. We gotta feel with compassion. When I read about what Jesus is doing in verse 35 and then I compare that to verse 36, something, there's this, there's this gap. Something doesn't make sense, it doesn't align. He has this perfect successful ministry, something that we've already admitted, yes, sign me up, I wanna be a part of that. Yet when he looked at the people, when he saw what was going on, it said that he had compassion for them. Compassion, that, that word in the, that's translated compassion in the Greek that means at the depths of your bowels are twisting. It's sick to your stomach. It's your, your stomachs and knots. It's the feeling you get when you walk into a children's cancer ward and you see those kids without their hair and their pale skin and they're underweight. You get sick to your stomach. You know something's wrong. You know this isn't right. You know that this is, that this is amiss. And that's what Jesus, in spite of all of the things that were happening, healing every disease, every affliction, all the people were coming to him, the crowds, he was preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Yet when he looked across, he had compassions. He had this feeling, this visceral feeling in the gut of his stomach, bent over sick at what he saw. What would bring Jesus to this kind of feeling? What what would give him this kind of... uh, visceral feeling that, that, that this is not right, that something's wrong because he's doing what seems to be this perfect ministry, but you see it in the second part of the verse. He had compassion for them because they were what? Harassed and helpless like sheep without a, like sheep without a shepherd. See, Jesus calls his disciples to see in this moment with clarity He says, I want you to see what is really going on, to see the circumstance of the people and respond with this feeling of compassion. Jesus did not look at the crowds and all the people that were gathering and all the places that he was getting invited to speak to. He did not look at that and say that that's effective ministry. He didn't look at that and say, we've arrived, excuse me, that we arrived or this is success. But he looked at them and he was grieved because they are sheep without a shepherd. They were leaderless. They didn't have people coming alongside of him as he had to jet and go to the next town to proclaim the gospel and heal some diseases on his way. During this time, Jesus was visiting, they say, between 25 to 30 different villages and cities. That's how many villages and cities made up the, uh, that, that area at the time. But there's something here that Jesus says that he sees, and he says, I'm not excited about it that there's something lacking. 
And if Jesus, who can do so much more than us, who can be ever-present and all-knowing, if he, with all that he has accomplished, can look across and see the people and still have this sickness to his stomach, then we need to pay attention. We need to realize that in the middle of all of our success, and we have a lot of success here, this is an incredible, healthy church, but in the middle of all of this, if we think this is what success is, we will miss it. We will miss it. Jesus says, no, you've gotta look upon my people and you've gotta feel with compassion. He says, it's not good enough to do the kiss and run approach. When I was like in first and second grade, we had this little play yard, uh, playground game where the guys were on one team and the girls were on another team. And somebody would be it, either one of the girls or one of the guys. And they'd have to run and chase the guy, if it was a girl, and kiss him on the cheek or kiss him on the head. And then that person was it, and then they run. So the idea was you kiss and run, right? You give a kiss and then you get out of there. And Jesus said, that is not ministry. That is not effective ministry. But too often, that's how we view success in ministry. Let me find somebody in need. Let me insert myself with my programs or my resources into that need, and then let me go back into my comfort zone. And Jesus was saying, that's not effective ministry. That's not what all of this is about. But I'm afraid too often we, we do that. And as Jesus is going from place to place and doing all of these great things, he says, there's still a problem. There is no one wanting or willing to walk with my sheep. They're leaderless. So the Bridge Church, we're looking at a big move, right? We excited about it? Going to where? All right, just making sure. Nobody seems too excited about it. So we're, we're making this big move to Flatbush. We are taking a very successful ministry, picking it up from Park Slope, and we're trying to move it into Flatbush. We're not just moving the location of a worship service, but we're also changing our strategy and our approach to how we do ministry in many ways. We will always be a great regional church. I think we'll always attract people from different regions within this city. But we're saying, how do we take that momentum and that impact and now start impacting a neighborhood and a community for the gospel? So people are asking us a lot, why Flatbush? Why not Crown Heights? Why not here? Why not there? But why Flatbush? So when I think about Flatbush, and if I had to answer the question with one verse, it would be this. Because they're harassed, they're helpless, they're sheep without a shepherd. We try to find a place where we thought we could impact, where we could live out this verse as a church. A place that needs a church to come alongside and provide that guidance and that, that leadership. Now, don't mishear me. I am not trying to take away any of the, the strength and the pride and the culture of Flatbush and the proud people that are there. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is it's a community that lacks a strong gospel presence. There are not enough churches that resonate with that community, engaging them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we talk about them being harassed. I talk, started talking with people in Flatbush and people from our church who grew up or living in Flatbush right now. And one of the biggest needs they talk about is housing. We have a couple of our people that are actually looking for housing right now, right? You're, you're gonna start paying, right? And people are being forced out of their housings for higher rent, harassed. That word means to throw away, or to toss off or to throw away. In housing in Flatbush, residents that are living there are feeling like they're just being thrown away or tossed off. They're helpless, they're being harassed. They're helpless because Flatbush is about 52% immigrants. 
immigrants coming mainly from Caribbean cultures, Caribbean island countries, and they're coming. And our most vulnerable people in our city are oftentimes the immigrant population. They're helpless in many ways because they're trying to learn a new language, they're trying to learn a new culture, they're trying to get their kids established. And there's nobody to shepherd the sheep. So I'm leading a, a team and we're, we're trying to find a space in Flatbush. Please be praying for us. You know, we, we identify places. It's just, you know, think about trying to find an apartment in New York. Now think about that, trying to find a church building that you can meet in for New York. It's like that times about 10. But I see different people. I go into different shops. I get to meet different workers. I get to talk to some of you guys that are from Flatbush and that. And I know God's doing something because I've helped plant several churches and planted a church myself and pastor. And every time I've gone into that community, I start feeling that yearning in my gut, in my bowels, because it's a compassion that we need to feel for the people. And that's what God is saying. He says, listen, if you're gonna be an urban farming, an urban farmer, if you're gonna engage with the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're gonna to try to, to share my good news with other people, you've gotta have a compassion for the people. You have to feel this compassion. And this is what Jesus saw that made him with this gut-wrenching compassion for the people that he encountered. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever thought about it? Maybe not just for Flatbush, but what about your coworkers? The places you go to school, your family members, as you see them and they do not have a relationship with Christ, or you see the way that they're being treated by others, does it, does it cause a visceral feeling in the bowels of your stomach, the deepest place in your gut that says, I've got to engage because I have this compassion for them. So, so the question becomes, once Jesus sees this, he calls his disciples, he says, you know, I want you to have compassion. I want you to feel this compassion, this, this deep yearning to see something changed. But now, for the first time, we're gonna see him give them something to do, all right? So for five chapters, he's just been saying, hang out, watch me, follow me, listen to me. And then now he gives them something to do. Verse 36, verse 36, excuse me, 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. So this leads me to my second point. If we're gonna be urban farmers, we gotta feel compassion and then we gotta pray with confidence. We gotta feel compassion and then we gotta pray with confidence. For the first nine chapters, Jesus said, just follow me, listen, watch, check me out, watch things as I do them. Now he gives them this, this assignment. In the midst of everything that, that by our standards looks like a successful ministry, he, he, helps, he helps them see that the clarity of the people he helps them see their need. He helps them see that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But then he kind of breaks that down and he switches in the mind of his disciples what the real problem is though. Because he tells them to pray for confidence. He says pray. He says prayer is the first thing that you do. But here's the shocking part. What didn't he tell them to pray for? I just think it's amazing. He, he doesn't tell his disciples to pray for the people's sinful hearts that they would turn their ways and start following God. He doesn't pray for the situation of the people. He said they're harassed and helpless. He doesn't pray that their situation improves. He doesn't pray for judgment upon the wicked people that are, that are mis, mis, misleading them and, and harassing them and, and causing these problems in their life. He doesn't pray for that. What does he pray for? He prays for more laborers. 
He says, listen, we don't have a harvest problem. We've got a labor problem. We need more workers for the field. That's the problem. The problem is with the people that are supposed to be shepherds. They're supposed to lead and guide and direct and, and bring hope and help to the helpless. The problem Jesus identifies is the, the, the labor force, the worker force. And I said in the beginning that we lose the significance of some of these passages because we don't have a, a background for agricultural terms. Anybody grow up on a farm by chance? Maybe some of you Texas people grow up on a ranch or something? All right, good. So we're all in the same boat. So I can talk about farming. You guys will be like, yeah, this must be right. Um, <laughs> if I'm wrong, forgive me. All right, so I looked a little bit in farm, about farming in this time. All right, it was before all of the, the great inventions of tractors and modern day equipment and stuff, but the problem is still the same. When the harvest is plentiful, that only means there's opportunity. There is not money in the bank or food on the table as long as the harvest is sitting on the vine. It's just that there's an opportunity right now. There's an opportunity for, for an income. There's an opportunity to put food on the, on, on the table. And so as I studied about what it means to, to harvest, the biggest thing with harvesting the crop was the time was, click, was start ticking down once the harvest became ripe. Once the harvest was ready, you had so much time to get it out of the fields and into the barns to store it and to cure it so that it will last through the, through the seasons. And the fields are too big. It's too big for one or two people to do on their own. So, so the farmer had to summon his whole family, all of his servants, all of his workers. They would all spend the days in the field trying to get the crop inside before it goes bad. And I think we don't live with that kind of urgency. Why Flatbush? Because the harvest is plentiful there. We, we last week, we spent, I mean, this was so old school. We're like, we're like the Bridge Church. You know, we've got this great social media platform. We got this incredible website that everybody talks about. Last week, we sent people with like jacked up lanyards that said, I'll pray for you or something like that to walk the streets of, of Flatbush old school. They weren't even printed out on a printer. I think they're like handwritten or something like that. You know, it was, it was bad. It was bad. But guess what people were doing? Will you pray for me? One guy was on his knees crying with his hands lifted up, thanking God that a church was coming to love and serve the community in such a way because they're harassed and helpless and they recognize their sheep without a shepherd. And we're not gonna be the great saviors that walk into a neighborhood and turn it over, but we can be the faithful servants that go and give guidance and leadership and a gospel presence into a neighborhood and a community that needs it. In your workplaces, this isn't just a, a charge to the church, this is an individual charge to the people that you interact with every day, every moment, in your families, homes, in your workplaces and schools. Jesus is saying, pray with confidence. Pray with confidence. The first thing you can do is pray with confidence. It's not a, it's not a passive prayer. It's not a, Lord, you know what's going on. Will you help these folk? And it's not, I was like, what word could I use? Folk. Um, it, it's, not a, it's not just a passive, Lord, this is up to you. Just do something. No, it's, it's a very active prayer. It's, it's pray earnestly. That word earnest means to beset God, to beg, to plead, to, to annoy God with our prayers. 
It's the same kind of context that we see in, in uh, Luke 11 where Jesus shares this story about a man who has a friend and uh, he goes to his friend's house late one night asking for three loaves of bread because he had all these guests that came in unannounced. So he goes to their house and to his friend's house as late at night and his friend's like, listen, I'm in bed, I've got my wife, I've got my kids around, they all share the same bed, which sounds miserable. Um, I got three girls, man. It would not. So they, they, he says, just go, get out of here. No, I'm not gonna get out of my bed and wake every my family up to help you out. And so the man bangs on the door some more. And he says, please, you know, I need some bread. And so the man, the friend finally gets up and gets some bread. Why? Because he's such a great friend? Because he loves him so much? No, it's because he's annoying him. He's like, listen, I'm just going to get you bread so you'll quit annoying me. And then Jesus' point is, if that's how men think, think about how much greater God is in wanting to answer our prayer requests because of his holiness and his goodness. So this passage tells us to, to pray earnestly, to beg, to plead, to beset God, that he would deliver. But I want you to see something else in this verse, in Matthew 9, uh, 38. And it's something that should terrify us. Verse 34, 30, excuse me, 9, 38. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. All right, so we've got this word that's translated send out. The, the Greek for that is ekbalo. And what that word literally means is to force out, to, to shove out, to, to with violence if you must, to get out. This is terrifying. Jesus is saying, we've got a labor problem. Problem's not with the harvest. So he prays to the God of the harvest to do what? to force out the workers. And he says, if you must, persecute them. Persecute them. It's the same words that we see in Acts where you have this growing church. Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples, you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, until the ends of the earth. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And these great things are happening. They're healing diseases and afflictions, there's these miraculous um, things happening, these wonders of God. They're proclaiming the gospel, they're preaching and thousands are being saved. They think in, in uh, one year about the church grew from 12 to about 50,000 people in one year. Not bad, right? That's, that's church growth right there. That is a good, that's a good church. And so what happened with the disciples? Why are we gonna leave this? We're comfortable here. These people speak our language, they eat the same foods, they dress like us. The success is incredible. It's grown from just us to, to 50,000 people in a year. These miracles are happening. But God said, no, 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 you are gonna go from Jerusalem and you're gonna start moving outside of your comfort zone. And they didn't. They said, nope, we're gonna stay here. This is great, this is comfortable. And so what does God bring down upon the church? Persecution. He starts answering this prayer right here. He says, Lord, you're the Lord of the harvest. Raise up laborers, raise up workers, and if you've got to, force them out. Persecute them, get them out of here. How bad do we want the gospel to be taken to our friends and our communities? <laughs> Parents, listen, I'm a dad of a 17-year-old, a 16-year-old, and an 11-year-old girl. And you know, it's fun talking when they were younger about what they're gonna do when they're 
older and grow up, that's no fun anymore because I know they're gonna be leaving me soon. And I, my daughter, she's a senior this year, and I said, listen, dad's gonna be weird, all right? I'm just, I know you're probably gonna be leaving next year, so I'm just gonna be weird and stuff. <laughs> so here's, here's what I'm wrestling with. How much do I believe in this verse? How much do I believe God used my daughter to be an answer to your prayers for more laborers for the harvest? Persecutor, if you must. You see how that changes everything. When you start understanding the context of this story, it's not a shallow, guys, we need more people to serve at a church picnic. No, this is our people are helpless, they're harassed, they're sheep without shepherds. And God has called us to be shepherds amongst his people. This is not a call for more pastors. This is a call for more, pers- more presence with his people, more, more presence with his sheep. How bad do we want to see the gospel come to a neighborhood? How bad do we want to see the gospel come to our workplace? How bad do we want to see the gospel come to our families? Do we believe that the gospel has the power to change communities? Do we believe that the gospel has the ch- power to change people? So we pray, God, use us to be a part of your solution. Use us as workers. Use us as the laborers. And if you must, God, force us out. Force us out. Look who he prayed. He said to pray to. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. God is the Lord of the harvest. And when we pray to him, we're admitting that we are completely dependent upon him. And when we're dependent upon him, we're admitting that we need him. And so when we come into this relationship with God, we're coming into it in complete need. If we're gonna see lives transformed around us, if we're gonna see communities transformed around us, if we're gonna see the gospel taken to places like Flatbush, and Flatbush is not the destination, that's just our next point in the journey. If we're gonna see that happen, we have to have complete confidence and reliance on God. So he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, and how do we pray? We pray earnestly. We pray earnestly, we beg, and we plead. All right, here's the last thing I want us to talk about. Let's look at Matthew 10.1. So if we wanna be urban planters, man, that sounds terrible, sounds so hipster. All right, feel like I need to be up in Williamsburg or something preaching. (laughs) Definitely not Flatbush, right? 10.1, and he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to do what? To heal every disease and to heal every affliction. Every disease and every affliction. Listen, we've got to feel compassion. We gotta pray with confidence. And the third thing we gotta do is we gotta respond with closeness. The New Testament starts with God. And it starts with his son, Jesus. And as he's baptized, he comes out of the water and says a dove descends upon him. And then there's this voice that says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And God is saying, I am with him. I am with him. And then Jesus calls calls his disciples to him. He says, listen, watch, and follow me. I'm with you. I'm with you in this time. But now there's the transition. Now there's the transition. Just the verse before, they were praying for laborers, they're praying for workers. So now Jesus gathers them up. He gets them back together. He's like, guys, 
guess what? We just prayed for workers. We just prayed for labors. And God has answered our prayers. You're the answer. You're the answer. So I'm gonna send you out. I'm gonna give you an assignment. I'm gonna give you a task, but I'm with you. I'm with you. As the Father is with me, I am with you. You have been watching. You have been listening. You have been following me. We've been hanging out. Now it's time. I'm getting ready to send you out. And church, that's the call today. Are we willing to be shepherds to the harassed and to the helpless? Are we willing to, to, to lead and to bring a gospel presence? Will you give up your comforts? Will you give up the things that, that you are, feel, the things that make you feel safe, the things that give you the security that you want and need so that God can send you out and you can be a part of that labor force, that workforce for him? What's incredible about 10-1 is that Jesus calls them to do the exact same things that he did. He didn't say, you know, you go out and you start my social media campaign for me because I'm gonna go hit a couple more cities. He didn't say, you go out and set up a website or you go out and you be my secretary and gather the names. No, he said, you go out and do the same things I did. Proclaim the gospel, heal every disease and heal every affliction. What is a shepherd primarily known for? Being present with their sheep. You cannot be a shepherd if you're not willing to be with your sheep. My, my daughter, Katie Beth, she's my oldest. She's my little prophet. She's called me out on a few things. Um, one time, I think it was before Missy was even born, we were planting a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, first church that I've been a part of planting, first church that I planted, and I really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I read some books. Nobody is before church planting was a big thing, so there wasn't a whole lot of people training you on how to plant churches. So I'm just trying to figure this thing out. So I'm reading this book, and the book talks, I'm kind of an analytical numbers kind of guy anyhow, and so the book is talking about how church planting is this numbers thing. That Listen, if, if you give out like 100 little flyers to people, you're gonna have about 5% respond and visit your church. And of those 5%, maybe one or two will stick with you if you're doing everything well. So if you want to get one new person, you give out 100 flyers. If you want to get a fa- a 10 new people, you got to get about 1,000 flyers. So it became this numbers game with me. All right, So that's how I thought about my community and my people. And I even told my church, I was like, hey, listen, we're going we're gonna to do these outreach events. This was before, I know we like do Instagram and Facebook. This was before any of that stuff was going on, okay? So we put these little flyers for a sermon series in a bag, and we put a little trinket, and we would go hang them on the doors of different houses in our neighborhood and community in Cincinnati. And my two oldest daughters at the time, they were about six and seven, five and six, they went with me. They're great. I mean, because I could just sit in the car, give them the bags. They would run up to the, to the houses, do it. You know, like, don't worry about the dog. It'll be all right. <laughs> Stuff like that. Don't worry about it. Now, in this book, it talked about if your time was limited. We didn't have money to do mailers. So it talked about if your time was limited, you wanted to do this between the hours of 11 and 4 p.m. Why? Hit a lot more houses with nobody to talk to. Everybody's at work, <laughs> Right? And so for a numbers guy that tends to be introverted, I'm like, yes, this is great. It's in a book. It must be good, must be good stuff. So, and I would tell my people that, go 11-4, and you can just go boom, 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 boom. So we're doing this, and we're passing out a couple hundred of these things. And, and my oldest daughter, Katie, she says, Dad, why are we doing this? 
I said, babe, we want people to know that Jesus loves them and so does Graceland Community. That was the name of our church. Graceland Community loves them as well. And so she's like, okay. And so she's just, man, both of them, Katie, Beth, and Maddie, just all day long. It was hot. It was like 85, 90 degrees. It was burning up. For about two hours, we passed out these things. I think we did about 200 homes that day. And we're driving back to our house and, uh, and they're just dead quiet in the back of the, the car, just tired and worn out from all the walking. I'm feeling fine. I'm sitting in my car just making them do the work, right? They got those little hands. They're good, you know. Um, but from the, back, from the back of the car, I'll never forget this. This is one of those pivotal moments where God just changed my life. From the back of the car, Katie Best's like, hey, Dad, I got it. I got it. I know what we can do. I'm like, Katie, what? What do you want to do? She's like, let's go to every house in Cincinnati and give them. She just got a new princess tea set. She's like, let's give them a princess tea party. And I said, okay, why do you want to do that? And she gave me that, dad, you know, I get it now. She's 17. It sounds a little different, but like, you know, you're an idiot. Dad, so that everybody knows that Jesus loves them. Nathan, um, in, in the Old Testament, King David had committed a sin and had an affair and then had his mistress husband killed in battle. And uh, the prophet Nathan came to him one day and he tells him this crazy little story. If you've not read it, watch the VeggieTales version of it. Uh, <laughs> you've seen it. Uh, he comes to him and he says, he gives a story about, you know, man, a poor man had a sheep and the rich man took it from him and all of this stuff and it infuriated David. It infuriated him. He says, you bring me that man, I'll have him killed. And Nathan said, you're the man. He said, you're the man. And in that moment when Katie Beth said, dad, so that people know that Jesus loves them, that story immediately came to my mind and God said, you're the man. How dare you try to plant a church and shepherd the people you're not willing to spend time with? How dare you? And I broke and I cried. I went back to my church. It's all Catholic people, so you could tell them, you know, they thought me like the father. So I'm like, hey, no more going between 11 and five. All, all after five, talk with people. I'm like, yes, sir. Um, that's the great thing about it. Father. But it changed the way I engage neighborhood and community. I don't, listen, I don't know if my family is gonna physically move from where we are to Flatbush. We're not doing anything for a year until my daughter gets out of school and I can start reducing the number of bedrooms and stuff like that. But I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> but I know my heart and my affections are changing. You know, it's not always def defined by where you live. It's, it's defined by where you're making space and your time and your resources to invest. And as a church, God is calling us to invest in a neighborhood because they're helpless and they're harassed and they're sheep without a shepherd. And I'm just inviting you to join me and my family as we think about how we can lead and how we can be a gospel presence in that neighborhood and in that community. One last thing I want you to see about these passages and then I'll be done. One last thing. These were 12 ordinary men. Let's take Judas out, he, 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 he goofed. So 11 men. <laughs> All right, we'll take, let's throw him out of the equation. These were 11 ordinary men, nothing unique about them, nothing worthy for them to carry on this great movement that they would. 11 ordinary men. 
how could they be so successful? After Jesus sent them out and they started doing the things that he did, how did they have such great impact and great success? The answer is in Acts 4.13. Acts 4.13. This is what we see. So two of those disciples, Peter and John, were arrested for healing for doing the things that Jesus sent them out to do, for proclaiming the gospel, healing diseases, healing afflictions. And so they arrest them. These were two guys that ran scared just, just 40, 50 days earlier. Now they're doing these things and, and the religious leaders arrest them and they say, well, whose name are you doing this under? And Peter, the one, Peter's the one that, that denied Jesus three times, a scaredy cat. He had no, no boldness. But in this moment, he looked them in the face and he said, Jesus Christ, you remember him, the guy you killed, the guy you murdered on the cross? He said, that's whose name we do this under. That's whose authority we do this under. It's through the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. I love this verse, 413. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were what? Uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they had recognized they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. Feel compassion, pray with confidence, earnestly beseeching, begging God and respond with closeness. This isn't a passage about more pastors. It's a passage about more presence. Come close to those that are harassed and helpless and sheep without a shepherd and see what God will do through you. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't even have to be doing the Christian thing for a long time. He has a way of using ordinary men and women to accomplish some extraordinary, extraordinary things. Father, we are coming to a time where we now have to make a decision. We have to respond to the music we've sang where we've, it's sometimes easy to sing these things that Lord, we confess, we've already broken half the things we've sung about today. And Lord, we've got to now respond to your word. I sense that you were present, Lord, and I sense that it went out and it fell upon ears. And now Lord, you're calling us to respond in a way that maybe will take us out of our comfort zone, in a way that would maybe stretch us like we've never thought before. But Lord, the harvest is plentiful, but it won't always be plentiful. The clock is ticking. May we respond with urgency, may we respond with prayer, and may we respond with closeness. Lord, we don't have to pray about what you want us to do. You've told us. So just help us to be faithful to it. In your son's precious name, amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.